Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with career coach Dr. Marty Nemko. He has been a career and personal coach to over 6,000 individuals and is the author of 13 books with 250,000 copies sold, including Careers for Dummies, as well as 4,000 published articles which can be found in Time, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. He's written more than 1,800 blog posts in Psychology Today. 26 of his best articles are anthologized in the Best of Marty Nemco 2021 edition. He teaches methods of inquiry to medical students at the University of California, San Francisco. He was the one man in a one-man PBS TV fundraising special, Eight Keys to a Better Work Life. He holds a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, with two specializations, educational psychology and evaluation of individuals and programs. Marty, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be with you, Aaron. So you've written this very interesting blog post, Beware the Temptation to Indoctrinate Your Children. And I am really excited to talk with you about the ideas and concepts that you outline in that today. But before we get to that, I want to learn a little bit more about you and get a sense of who you are as a person and a professional. So let's start with that. Tell us a little bit about your personal background and your pathway to becoming a career and personal coach. Well, I like to be more candid than is typically uh, the response to that. So who I am is a worry wart. I'm a sad person who uh, really works hard and tries to make a difference. That's really at the essence of who I am. I'm not a work-life balance person. Although I'm old, I work 70 hours a week. And I'm, that's, to me, my definition of the life well-led. The, uh, the, the more braggy stuff, like I said, as a workaholic, I've written 14 books uh, over, I think it's now 5,000 articles. I've seen 6,000 career and personal coaching clients. I'm a professional rose hybridizer. I play the piano professionally. I work constantly. And that's and I have a PhD from in educational psychology from Berkeley. That's probably more than you need to know. Well, I was going to say, like when I started reviewing some of your work, I was sort of blown away by the amount that you have produced over the course of your career. And probably even more impressively, the diverse range of topics that you write about. I mean, I, I just want to ask, like, how do you decide what you're going to write. I mean, you write about everything. The honest answer is I deserve no credit. Although I was born to dire poverty in the tenement in the Bronx, the new immigrants, Holocaust survivors, I was just born smart. My father, although he had no education, learned six languages just on the fly. He's just really smart. I inherited the genes. That's the story. So I can, again, no credit of my own. I can learn a lot about very, about almost anything very, very quickly. And one of the best ways to learn is to write about it. And so I write about whatever I think is important. If I already know about it from my clients or my personal experience, or if it's something I say, damn it, this is really important for me to research. I'm going to go and research it and learn quickly enough. So at least I can write short form, which is what I believe in. I think people do not grow from tomes. Although you academics insist on tomes, <laughs> I believe in short form. So I write uh, blog posts. Uh, most of my work is under a thousand words. I actually was a mini columnist in the San Francisco Chronicle where I wrote 100 word columnettes, and those have actually had more impact than anything else. Wow. Well, let's talk about this blog post that you wrote on Beware the Temptation to Indoctrinate Your Children. 
what inspired you to write that? And tell us a little bit about kind of the meaning behind that. In one word is bias. I have never seen in my almost 72 years on this earth as much polarization and bias. That bias occurs not only in the media, but in individuals, even at private parties. And because parents love their kids so much, they bias their kids. They don't prioritize. They don't prize the veneration of multiple perspectives. They unconsciously venerate the inculcation of their values, especially around core issues like politics, like religion, like work-life balance or, uh, or the prioritization of work or the prioritization of play above all. And that, I, I do think that leads to a very, not only contentious, but a worse society. Not all wisdom resides from the left. Not all wisdom resides on the right. Wisdom resides from the fair-minded circumspect analysis of all perspectives that are reasonable. And unfortunately, in our media, in our schools, in our colleges, it is the opposite. They want to indoctrinate you. And I try to empower parents, at least encourage them to pull on ropes of restraint, not indoctrinate their kids, but instead teach them the most important value, which is broad critical thinking. Now, you talk about a number of different ways in which parents do this and in which ways uh, children can get indoctrinated. I'd like to cover a few of those to get your thoughts on them. The first one you talk a little bit about is the idea of religious to atheist continuum and indoctrination along that. Tell us a little bit about what that means. Well, the Pew Center for the Study of Religion uh, has increasingly found over the last decade or so that the fastest growing religion is no religion. And yet still we have 55% of the public believing in angels. We still have about 80 or 90% of people believing in God, even though in many ways, religion is not only does it, is it the, the fuel that fires many wars, but it also in many ways is very disempowering. It encourages passive obedience to this omniscient, omnipotent God, when in fact there is a, you know, good reason to encourage kids to not go to Sunday school where they're going to get inculcated, whether it's in Christianity or Judaism or Islam or Hinduism, but rather to see that, hey, that is one perspective, but the other perspective is how should we have faith in a God that's supposed to be a loving God who would allow COVID, who would allow terrorism, who would allow Putin's naked aggression for no legitimate reason, earthquakes, millions of babies, babies born with horrific, painful diseases, screaming in agony for weeks and then dying, leaving bereft parents. A loving God would not allow that. So there is a theological argument to the contrary, but religious parents would be very wise to say, yes, we're sending you to Sunday school to learn the religious approach to life, but we want you not to surrender your locus of control, your degree of agency to a God that well may not be there, the New Testament constantly says, do not have faith in yourself. This is a Matthew quote. Do not have faith in your own wisdom. Have faith in God and God will move mountains or something like that. That's very disempowering. And mm -hmm. many people have been left bereft for this faith rather than self-efficacy. And that's why I believe that in the religion domain, especially the 80 to 90% of people who are religious should encourage their kids, if they want to expose them to religion, they have a cosmic obligation to make the case 
for atheism and the empowerment that an atheist has. I see. And that's that goes along with the lines of teaching children to think for themselves so they can make their own decisions about these religious matters. Correct. How about politics? Well, there is nothing that people feel more strongly about. The, in the old days, it was religion may have been number one, but now it's politics. People either want to think of view of, for example, Trump as the Antichrist, or they, or they think of, of progressives as the only right way. And the reality really is, and I am a moderate, and, as, and I must speak to it as that, there really is, as I mentioned earlier, wisdom that comes from the left and right. And once you start to think that all that, because everything the left wants to do comes down to one word, redistribution. Redistribution from the successful to the unsuccessful, from countries like Israel to countries, to groups like the Palestinians. It's never about, to, from Asians and whites to blacks. It's always from the abled to the disabled. It's never about merit or how much the group contributed to society. It's we want to make things more equal. It is the Stalinist, Maoist, Leninist, Marxist view that we are all best when we're equal. And there is legitimacy to that. It hurts me as a moderate to see people with three yachts and fancy houses in, in, uh, uh, in Hawaii on, on Hanama Bay when there are uh, people starving on Hotel Street. So... On the one hand, I see that. On the other hand, the world gets more good when we reward excellence, not redistribute from the people most likely to cure cancer or COVID or whatever to people who have a much lower probability of that. So the wise parent politically says, here is the leftist view. You're going to get it from the major media, from CNN, the New York Times, et cetera. But there is another point of view. And there is an argument that could be said for meritocracy as opposed to redistribution. Here, my child, are the pros and cons. You, my darling child, my, I want to trust you to, to be a free, circumspect thinker. That's how it gets addressed politically. Once again, it sounds like uh, exposing to children to alternative ways of thinking about politics so they can muck around in that gray area between extreme poles of politics. Gray area is great, and yes, it is exposing it. But fortunately, we are in such an era of groupthink that it is hard, and again, as a moderate, it is hard to find conservative media that is intelligent. You have to search to libertarian websites like Reason or read things like Victor Davis Hanson, but the cancel culture has canceled some of these brilliant people. Hanson, for example, is a senior scholar at, the, at the Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and he's been canceled by Twitter, by even in, you know, Google is one of the most influential bias sources it will absolutely through its algorithm move up liberal search results and squash to page 10 conservative ones. I am not a conservative. I am liberal, I am pro-choice, I am pro-gay marriage, I am not materialistic, but I am very concerned about what I'm seeing as a almost pre-Nazi, pre-Stalinist attempt to absolutely censor and censure uh, and cancel views that deviate from the orthodoxy. So what is the parent's responsibility here to help their child be able to weed through all of the different political viewpoints and be able to think for themselves? Huge. Because the schools, these, I mean, like I said, the schools, media, and, and colleges are now speaking with largely one voice. So the really wise parent has to do that additional searching and not only expose, but fair-mindedly. You know, the media always plays the game of exposing you to a contrary point of view, but they put it in the penultimate paragraph, the second to the last paragraph, and it's almost disparaging, like a throwaway line. 
The parent's responsibility is to present in a almost like a judge-like way with the scales of justice. Here are the best case arguments that can be made for a liberal point of view, a socialist point of view, a, a conservative point of view, a libertarian point of view. And now my loving child, let's talk about it. It shouldn't be a lecture. It's, I've, I'm here, I've helped expose you, of course, age appropriately. I've exposed you to these various points of view. What do you think, my, dar my darling child? Which, what do you think is right? What questions do you have? That's the parent's responsibility. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like asking questions and letting the child talk rather than sort of dictating belief systems. Oh, absolutely not dictating. Mini lectures are okay for content to provide bits of content, but then follow the mini little mini lecture or the mini little article with a question, listen, ask follow-up questions, show respect, help guide the child toward being a full dimensioned thinker. Now, a lot of parents, I'm sure they have their children and they have some very specific ideas of what they think their children should do when they grow up, their work, their career, the professional path, what they do, how they follow that. Right. What do you have to say about that? Just a bit different. Because of genes and environment, the child has an advantage in pursuing one of the parent's careers. The kid has inherited genes that predispose them to success in that career, if the parent is any good at the career, has had an environment where they've seen the parent in action. The parent will infuse into that child insider information that you couldn't get as an outsider. No, well, of course, I'm not saying all, your, all children should do what their parents do, but you certainly shouldn't necessarily as a parent indulge the child's desires to rebel. It's a, it's, a, it's a developmental stage from an Ericksonian perspective to reject parental anything in teenage or early 20s. So I would encourage parents to not necessarily capitulate to that, but rather to say, I understand. And of course, you know, just because I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Hawaii uh, doesn't mean I expect you to be. Uh, but I, there is some advantages to it. So would you like me, would you like to come and come to work and watch me? Would you like to ask me questions about work? Would you like to intern for me? Would you like to whatever? And that's fine. That's a great place to start. And then expose your child. There's so many, there are myriad ways to learn about lots of careers. And the first of them that I think a parent should do with their kid who's maybe in high school or in college is either to scan the index of the Occupational Outlook Handbook, which is available free online and has profiles of the 300 most common careers, or my book, Careers for Dummies, which have a little more palatable, briefer profiles of 350 careers, mm -hmm. and just scan the index and read any that intrigue you. That exposes you in less than an hour to hundreds of careers beyond the normal ones that people think about, doctor, lawyer, teacher, librarian. And that's the kind of thing that a parent can do. Yes, expose them to your own career, but encourage again, broad thinking by exposing to a wide range. Yeah, I like that. So it's sort of like a, a gentle nudging in the direction that you think the child may have some aptitude and moving in that direction, but not being too heavy handed about it. I wouldn't even go say nudge. Nudge implies a pushing in that direction. I would mm -hmm. expose the child to that and then say, there are reasons for that, but I certainly don't want to push you into this. I don't want to nudge you even into this. So let's weigh that against what we're going to see in the Occupational Outlook Handbook, the 300 other careers, or the 350 in my book, Careers for Dummies. So not nudge, expose. I think parents oftentimes have ideas about family and relationships for their children. What do you have to say about this? It is a miracle to me that marriage has lasted as an institution as long as it has. 
the notion that two people in males and females, notwithstanding the, uh, the political correct thing that the genders are just socially constructed, males and females have a significant genetic as well as an environmental component. And the fact that males and females, I'm talking about straight marriage for the moment, should be together for an entire life is absurd. It became, it was a necessity in times past when really there was only one income earner likely, and that is the man. Uh, or, and that it was a sin to have a child out of wedlock, a bastard. Mm-hmm. Um, that's no longer the case. And so, you know, I, I, with regard to relationship, again, I believe in ecumenicism in a wide range of options. So I would talk to my child about the wisdom of marriage, serial monogamy, polygamy, solohood, I am married. I've been with my wife for a million years, but we live separately. And I, we see her, I see her every night for two hours, but I have much more autonomy. And it really works very well. There is no one formula. So again, I am, as a moderate, I am not an ideologue in either direction. Conservatives say marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, liberals say, hey, we're going to party down. <laughs> I like exposure to a range of options and ask the child, again, Little mini lecture followed by an exploration with the child. So what are your thoughts? What are your questions? That to me is the way to go regarding relationships. Let's talk a little bit about free time, leisure activities. I can tell you as a parent who has a child, now a 14 year old, every kid and their families are looking for a million ways to get their kids involved in all sorts of activities, whether it's music, sports, model this, model that. There's all sorts of things going on. And it just seems like there's so much pressure on kids to get involved in these activities that their parents are laying out for them. So what would you say about how to manage the idea of encouraging leisure activities in a way that's not indoctrinating? Wonderful. I do think that this frenzied attempt to try to get your kid into a designer label college is hurting kids enormously not just the stress, but forcing them into hyperactivity. I don't mean hyperactivity as an ADHD. I mean, uh-huh. being always active and involved in a million activities. Right. I am a fan of David Elkin's book, The Hurried Child. And I think it is very wise to allow unfettered time. We don't acknowledge the reality that we are at least half genetic on almost all characteristics. And forgive me for just talking about an anecdote because I'm just an N of one. But my parents, because we were dire poor, did not overschedule me. And that had a beautiful side effect. My happiest memories, I'm looking back on my life, was sitting and staring out the window, looking at snowflakes, a light on my window, or looking if I could remember the brand names of all the cars as they were driving by, or in the summer, lying on the grass and looking up and watching the clouds scud by. If I were scheduled like today's typical parents, ballet, soccer, religious, religious school, political activism, I think it would be worse. I'm certainly no slacker. You know, I've gotten <laughs> accomplished a tremendous amount. Those treasured childhood moments did not interfere with my genetic predispositions or otherwise. And school was horrible and boring and ridiculously for me. And I went to a school in Flushing, Queens, once we moved from the Bronx. I didn't get this grade. I went to Queens College and undergraduate, you know, didn't go to Harvard. None of that. And I went to Berkeley for my PhD, but none of that really was, was important. I was much more affected by my genes and my thinking and my reading and my self-explorations, etc. And I think that parents are stupid to overschedule their kids, especially piano. I want to talk about piano for a bit. Okay. It makes me crazy to see these parents force their kids into piano or violin lessons or whatever, who have no talent. 
I was a professional pianist and I, it came completely natural to me. And every other professional, I played for weddings and bar mitzvahs in New York. And every one of my colleagues who played professionally like that were not, did not sit and study. We were by nature, we could just play by ear. I would listen to the radio. My parents finally afforded a $50 piano and I would just simply play along with the radio or a hi-fi. But that I was gifted at, but I can't draw worse shit. I can't draw more than stick figures. So if my parents forced me, if I happened to have not been good at music, but good in art, and they forced me to take music lessons, I would have been crazy. I wanna do something for you now. Until a few years ago, I was a normal 10-fingered piano player, but I recently developed a hand condition. And if you can see, I cannot straighten this mm -hmm. finger. Mm -hmm. I cannot straighten this and I cannot straighten this. So I had to say to myself, what am I gonna do? I didn't cognitively or intellectually decide how am I gonna figure out how to play with seven fingers? I just started doing it. And moment by moment, when I saw, saw that if I couldn't play something with a given finger, I just either left it out or, you know, and I can't read music. I just play it by ear. So I want to, as a way of inspiring your, your people to see that it's not, I never practiced more than 10 minutes. My parents would set a timer, a kitchen timer for 20 minutes and then to, for me to practice. And as soon as she left the kitchen, I would turn the timer back to 10 minutes because I hated practice. I'm gonna play something for you now. Well, you, and I'm not gonna make it seem like it was something I prepared. What would you like me to play, Aaron? How about the theme song for Chariots of Fire? Let's try that. Yep, I see your keyboard over there. Okay. That's amazing. And I'm assuming you didn't rehearse that prior to our you interview. Didn't tell me you, you didn't tell me. I just asked you this in this moment. Yeah, that's amazing. My point is, you could practice all your whole life. And if you don't have that gift in you, you will never play like that. I have never played that in my life. I've heard it many times, but I've never, ever in my life played it. Right. And so if you and your children are talented at dunking a basketball, have them play basketball. If your child is naturally able to draw, have them draw. Don't force and let alone overschedule your child. Well, on that note, Marty, I mean, what you're saying makes perfect sense that let their talents lead them to what they want to do. But children do need to have some exposure to these things to initially to see if they're even things that they do have talent at or they would like. So how would you encourage parents to give them the exposure and then find out about it? We can know almost instantly whether the talent is there. 
if I were going to ask a child to play piano, to see if that kid had a talent to play piano, I certainly wouldn't get him lessons and have him read music because reading music actually atrophies the ear because you take what the squiggles are in front of you and your eyes and you translate to your finger, your ear atrophies. I would say, try trial and error to play Mary Had a Little Lamb. And if the kid, of course, he's going to get a lot of guesses wrong, that's fine. But if I see progress right there in that first 10 minutes, I say, okay, keep trying Mary Had a Little Lamb. And keep seeing it and see if you can add a second finger. And I would let it or build organically. I say, a kid who's six years old, draw me, draw me a heart. What's your favorite thing? Draw me your favorite heart. Or, you know, there was an old, you're a psychologist, and there was an old psychology a technique called the family drawing or whatever. Draw your family mm -hmm. doing something together, right? Okay, draw your family doing something together. Now, I would draw just stick figures because I can't draw. Some other kid could even have dimensionality or shadowing or whatever. We make the mistake of thinking that first impressions are wrong. I understand about level one and level two thinking for, you know, Moses Tversky and uh, Daniel Kahneman with the, you know, you're supposed to have spend more time to reflect. But the reality is our first intuitions are often dead right. And so with my child, I want to see how they're learning to read. As I, you know, when you're supposed to read, you should read to your child when, from when he's an infant and see how quickly he's picking up the words. I might read, a, read and then stop and finish the last word. The cat in the, and if the kid's hat, that tells me the kid's going to be a reader. And I'm monitoring that. I'm not doing this, making the kid go through two years of piano, violin lessons and screeching. To, to, it's torture for him, torture for me. Same is true of school. There's another area I'd like to ask you about regarding this indoctrination idea, and that has to do with developing personal identity. And this is maybe a little bit more nebulous, but I'm thinking about things like, I don't know, sexual gender orientation, growing up, developing an identity as a human being. And obviously, parents may have strong ideas about what they think their child's identity should be. Now, sometimes we look at the introversion, extroversion continuum, too. That's another one that often shapes what where a child's comfort level is in terms of their interaction socially. So do you have anything that you could say on this? Great question. So let's talk about both of those examples you gave, the introversion, extroversion, and the, and the sexual orientation thing. Let's talk about sexual orientation since you said it first. It is largely genetic. And if I, you know, if my child is, is showing signs of being gay and yes, the stereotypes, I certainly am not going to indoctrinate. No fucking way. That's really a violation of my kid's biology. But I, I'm going to be, I'm not going to push him to be gay either. Because sometimes people have effeminate characteristics and they're like tapestries doesn't mean they're gay. <laughs> uh, but I would, I would fair-mindedly outline the pros and cons, if any. You know, I might, hey, I'll just role play. What would I say to my kid? Pick an age. How old do you want this kid to be? 15. 15. So I say, you know, we are in an era, fortunately, where... Sexual orientation, it's, you're not bad if you're gay or not bad if you're straight or bisexual. Uh, what's important is that you are who you are. And if you're still exploring, that's okay too. So the advantage of being straight is even in this modern society, it's still easier to be straight in this world than gay. But it's not hard. It's not that hard anymore. It's not like it was when I was growing up. Um, there'll be some assholes who are going to be, you know, think you're uh, inferior because you're gay or you're violating the Bible or whatever. That's garbage. And, you know, you need to know that that's, there are always going to be fools in, a, in every dimension and including that. But it is easier to be straight. 
just simply and influently of having children. Although gay people have children all the time. They have surrogate parents or they adopt. What's really important, my loving child, is that you be who you are. And if you're not sure, fine, do a little explanation, but don't just follow the crowd. I know it's cool to be gay. I even know it's cool to be trans these days. Try to resist the, the, the external pressures and ask yourself who you are. And if you want to experiment, experiment and know that I love you no matter what. That's what I would say. That makes perfect sense. So what you're talking about is what we sort of started with as a parent presenting different points of view, different ways of looking at things that a child is struggling with as they're growing up, trying to learn about themselves and figure things out. You also talked about expressing doubt sometime about the parents' own belief systems. How does that helpful? Great point. Do not mistake my intensity as certitude. There are things I'm certainly not sure about. There are some days I do believe that redistribution from the rich to the poor net is the wisest thing. And there are other days that I really believe the world is better if we reward merit because that's going to get you more of what you, it's one of the few psychological principles that are agreed on is you get more of what you reward. But I have my doubts, my dear child. And so will you, like people, even, you know, I spoke to a rabbi who said that, that she has doubts about the existence of God. Mm. So doubt is a, a sign of intelligence. Too much certitude is a sign of, of being a narrow ideologue. So doubt is fine. I have doubts and you will have doubts. And that's fun. It's also fun for us to talk about the doubts, the gray areas you said to Aaron at the beginning of the session. Yeah, it leads to better conversation, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I really like the way you put that. And I think the take home message here about that is that this idea, if a parent has an idea that they need to kind of present as all-knowing and self-assured about everything, that does not help the child in his or her development. That's why I laugh at politicians say, I stay in, I'm staying in the court. This is, I've always been this way. I've always said this is who I am. <laughs> Forgive my using the Southern accent. It could be easily any accent. The wise human being, and I do believe we'd be better off with presidents as philosopher kings per, per Socrates than our stupid electoral system that gets us the likes of, uh, let's just say all our presidents are not the best and brightest and because they have to run a four-year press the flesh campaign endlessly. The best, best and brightest people don't want to do that. So in any case, uh, yes, expressing doubt, changing your mind is a sign of wisdom which of course is a word I love to use, wise and wisdom. That's more than smart, it's more than clever. Wise or wisdom implies taking into account all the stakeholders, even cosmically. There was a uh, famous uh, ethicist named Lawrence Kohlberg who identified six stages of moral development. And the highest was the person who thought cosmically, not just whether it's right or wrong, not whether they get in trouble, not whether it's the law, not whether it's right for the world, but somehow there are these cosmic universals that if you can, that is the highest aspiration to your level of thinking and of doubt is doubt and certitude. What, would, what in terms of universal values, apart from pragmatics, what is wisest for not just for you, but for the world? And that thinking that way leads to ethical behavior too. Marty, what if you have a child who disagrees with you about something that's really important to you? Great, role play it, be, it, be that person right now. Yeah, because I want to try to model something here. So, so why don't you be the kid in which you're going to say something that I'm going to really disagree with? Dad, you know what? I don't want to go to church anymore. I'm really, you know, I'm not into it. I think it's stupid. 
I really don't believe in God. I think church is dumb. Uh, I'm not going anymore. And I just don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. I am so glad you came to me to talk about it. It's a really understandable thing. So you weren't always that way. What's changed your mind? Well, you know, I just see like there's hypocrisy. Like people are always doing things that are hypocritical. And I see people in the church and how they act to people like they're not really good Christians. And, you know, you see this, what's going on in the Ukraine and around the world. Like, I just think it's a lot of bullshit. In many ways, you're right. And let's let's look at this in terms of justice in what, or in terms of balance. What have you have you gotten? What have you gotten, if anything, from having gone to church or, or confirmation class or whatever? Well, I don't know. I guess I made some friends. You have any idea why? You know, 90 percent of the world believes in a deity and believes in religion of one sort or another. Why do you think you're a 15 year old kid and you're a bright kid? And I love you and interesting kid. I love that you're raising this issue. What do you think is the reason that 90% of people, including bright people, um, believe in religion? Not all go to a church or a mosque or a synagogue, but what do you think is the basis behind that? I don't know. I guess they need something to believe in. Otherwise, they'd be totally lost. That's true. And uh, and how about you? If Let's assume now you have no, not only do you not go to church, but there's, let's say you become an atheist and you're not really will you be totally lost or no? What will you, do you need an anchor or you're to hell with all that? What do you think? Gosh, I don't know. I'm not sure. It's hard. Take a moment. Let's not rush. Take a deep breath and think about it. Now pretend you're not going to church anymore. Maybe you're not going to believe in God anymore. Think about what you want to believe in, what you can trust. What do you think? Yeah. Okay, Marty, I, I get the idea. And I think that makes a lot of sense what you're doing here, because you're, again, you're not taking a heavy handed approach to try to indoctrinate the child and get them to do what you want them to do. You're honoring that they're having doubts and they're questioning, and you're still sticking to your own beliefs and thoughts. It's not like you're giving them away, but it becomes a dialogue. And I hear that that's, I think, relevant to all the things we're talking about today is what's really important in that parent-child relationship. Well, Marty, this has been a really, really interesting conversation with you. You're quite a character. You've got a ton of energy, and I'm really impressed with your thoughts and your talent as a piano player. Uh, and um, it's, been, it's been really wonderful. I wonder if there's any final thoughts that you'd like to leave us with today. I guess my, is my core value <laughs> that I do hold so dear. We not only prize work-life balance, but there's this endless increasingly this focus on just be, just feel it. I think that is absolutely not in humankind's interest. I believe in the power of, of work and rational thought. And if you're working hard, but at what you're good at, and you're ethical, you will not burn out. You still have a lot of energy. I have a lot of energy. Partly, I'm grateful to my genetics. My parents did live a long time, very healthy. But part of it is I'm doing work that I think I'm pretty good at. So I encourage people to work and not just be and work hard. I was shocked at a study in the UK recently that the average UK office worker works only two hours and 27 minutes a day. Hmm. Getting away, and I have a client who worked for BART, it's the train system here, 
who proudly tells me she makes 140,000 a year and she works one hour a day. <laughs> what a pissing away of one's life. So the thing I wanna leave you people with is that don't pathologize hard workers as workaholics like alcoholics, venerate them, honor them as people who are contributory and you yourself would be wiser no matter what your woes. Sometimes the best cure for your woes is to work. Work at what you're good at, do it ethically. And that is the last thing I want to leave you and for your kids and for yourself. That's what I want to leave you with. Wonderful, Marty. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. And thank you so much for the contribution that you make. I should tell people do you want to, where they can read all my crap. Just Google me. Probably the easiest thing to do. Just Google me and virtually any self-help topic around career, relationships, money, the meaning of life, anything, and you'll find my stuff and it's free. So, you know, it won't cost you anything. Right. And I'll publish all of the links to that in the show notes so people can connect to it if they need to. Oh yeah. And if people want to see me, want to, what do I am very blessed to have many more than clients that I can afford to see. So just email me a description of your situation. I'll either offer you free advice or I'll offer you an appointment. My email address is mnemco, that's M-N-E-M-K-O at comcast.net. Wonderful. Thank you, Marty. Take care, Aaron. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.